Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning and good afternoon and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today is a really fun day, a sort of blast from the past. We have as our guest R. Martin, or Marty Chavez, PhD. He has been in my life since the early 90s. We go way back. But um, Marty is a partner and vice chairman of Sixth Street, the $50 billion global investment firm, where he works on research and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is dear to all of us, uh, their sourcing engine, and portfolio management. He has been widely renowned as a leader who turned the whole Wall Street trading business into a software business and was among the most senior Latinos on Wall Street, as, as well as the most senior openly gay executive at Goldman Sachs for the many years he was there. Prior to Sixth Street, he had served as chief information officer, as well as a chief financial officer at Goldman Sachs. He also serves on the board of directors at Alphabet, the parent company of Google, as we all know, and Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Marty holds his AB, sorry, biochemical sciences and an SM in computer science from Harvard and a PhD in medical information science from Stanford. And if that's not enough, he's also just an all around great guy and a father of two. So welcome to the caring economy, Marty. Toby, it's a, it's a delight to be here and boy, we sure do go way back. Thank you for reminding me. And uh, I would just say one thing, like I, I was one of many people who, worked on uh turning the trading business into into a software business and uh what a what an experience that was yeah and how it's informed so much of where we are today so marty give us a little synopsis of your life i grew up in albuquerque new mexico uh which is interesting because there's really two businesses there one is tourism the other is the military industrial complex and i was good at math and good at computers my very first job was working for the Air Force Weapons Lab uh, when over the summer when I was 16. Uh, the government was pivoting away from testing neutron bombs by exploding them in the Nevada desert. And someone had the bright idea, couldn't we just simulate the explosion of bombs and find out everything we needed to know in software simulation? I mentioned that because that was that was really what started it all, Toby. I've been doing versions of that my whole life, taking a business or scientific or industrial reality uh -huh. and and simulating it in software. Once uh -huh. you've captured it in a high fidelity software model, you can turn it around and examine it and ask hypothetical questions. Uh, you could lose a lot of money. You could create a lot of damage, but uh -huh. it's all in a simulated or virtual world. And you wake up and realize, well, none of that actually happened. What can I do about it in the real world? And that's really a core principle that I applied on Wall Street, building a high fidelity model of the trading business so that we could imagine all the ways in which we might lose money um, and then do something before we did it, uh, before that actually happened. And I think we got really good at that. And now I'm working on doing really the same thing in biology, much harder problem we're seeing some exciting progress there. Again, as I said in the opening, you've sort of got left and right brain from what I've observed. So the the biomedical studies and your work now, the the digital, the finance, help us understand. I mean, AI is everywhere, particularly now with um, chat GPT, we're hearing everywhere. But, but you anticipated this years ago, you helped create 
this leveraging of technology, software, I would imagine AI, it has to be taking us, I believe, to a good place with guardrails. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, how do you approach something aside from saying, let's simulate it through software? I got excited about artificial intelligence, really, really since I was a kid, studying biochemistry. Well, that was another pivotal moment in my life. It was 1981. I was my first year at Harvard. Uh, I had sophomore standing, so I had to declare a major and the, the science professors were recruiting. And I remember Professor Steve Harrison sitting behind the table uh, saying to me, biochemistry wants you. And he said, the future of the life sciences is computational. He said that in 1981. Wow. Now it seems obvious. Then it was wild and prescient. And he said, if you major in biochemistry, uh, we can construct a major where you mostly study computer science, chemistry, physics, oh. math take one wet lab class and we'll call it a biochem major. And that's really that's really what got me started. Uh, so I went to Stanford for the MD PhD program, um, finished the PhD, did took a leave of absence almost at the very end of med school. I was at Stanford in a joint venture between the Department of Computer Science and the School of Medicine in the early 80s when there was a ton of excitement about artificial intelligence. It was, uh, they were called expert systems back then. Mm -hmm. And my thesis advisor, Ted Shortliff, actually achieved a lot of uh, recognition for building one of those first expert systems to diagnose blood bacterial infections. I was super excited about all of this, but I realized about halfway through my PhD that the computers were just way too slow to solve anything except toy problems. And so I wrote my PhD largely in computational complexity theory. Can we find uh, algorithms that give us approximate uh, disease uh, diagnoses and uh -huh. probabilities of disease and do that in an efficient way given that the computers were very slow and the compute power was just too low uh, back then, I was writing papers um, with some interesting people in that same program. And, and, and I'll mention them because it just really says a lot about artificial intelligence and, and medicine and biology. Um, so one of them is me. One of them is Eric Horvitz, chief scientist of Microsoft. One is David Heckerman, a uh, distinguished scientist in machine learning at Amazon. And the fourth is by far the most successful. He realized that, uh, that, that medicine was just too hard a problem for the compute power we had back then. So he decided to apply machine learning to an easier but very important problem, which is what movie to watch tonight. And of course, that's Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix. And so I uh, realized that, that again, that, that medicine was too hard. And randomly, I got a letter from a headhunter. And the headhunter said, I've been instructed by Goldman Sachs to make a list of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley with PhDs in math, physics, or computer science from Stanford. And you are on my list. Would you come out for a, for an interview? And that was quite a quite an interesting achievement for a headhunter back then, right? I don't know how he did it. There was no LinkedIn, um, but I, I went out really as a joke. I thought I was scamming this bank for a free trip uh, to New York, but that 
So I had the right place. I was in the right place at the right time with the right preparation. Finance was nowhere on my plan. I'd barely heard of Goldman Sachs. The Wall Street had problems that they needed to solve and they were willing to pay for those solutions. And their problems were actually quite a lot easier than problems in medicine medicine, and just about matched the state of the art of computing at the time. Clearly the computational capabilities have, I wonder about when you went to Goldman Sachs. So now I would argue that finance did build civilization, but still it's not (laughs) quite as warm and fuzzy as the human body. And I wonder, do you feel compromised or you were more fascinated and said, I can ride this out for a bit and see what I learn? Or how did you factor in that aspect of it? Well, Tony, I think I'm very pragmatic, right? I come from a a family just barely hanging on to the middle class uh, that borrowed and scraped money to send the kids to Harvard. And so my my parents would always say playing the piano is wonderful, humanities, speaking Spanish, all this is really great you need a job that pays the bills. <laughs> and so, so to me, I never really thought about warm and fuzzy versus not warm and fuzzy. I thought I got some bills to pay. <laughs> I spend most of my, my time on Wall Street feeling that my detour through medical school uh, had been a distraction. Hmm. I was making the mistake of comparing myself to other people around me and thinking, I'm about three or four years late in my career on Wall Street because of that detour through Stanford. But ah, it's a cliche, everything happens for a reason. It turned out that I was getting ready for the revolution that's happening right now, where the computers through Moore's law, the doubling every 18 months or so, you know, those doublings don't look like much the first 10, but then the next, the next 50 start leading to staggering results. And we're in the middle of that. But to make all of this work, you know, these AIs can cost hundreds of millions of dollars of compute and electricity to train. And so you need financing to make it happen. And so, so it turns out that that, Wall that, uh, that Wall Street was kind of a, a distraction, but an important distraction, a, a 30-year distraction where I learned a lot about finance, uh, but it was important to know finance and to know software and to know biology uh, to get ready for what's happening right now in 2023. So it all makes sense with perfect hindsight. Yes. Um, though, though most of the time I was on Wall Street, people would say, you went to med school? That that's kind of cute or weird or what were you thinking, yeah. right? And uh, no one's really no one's really asking that question now. No, but I, as you said earlier, in retrospect, you were a pioneer, right? Like all this, it does make sense in the rearview mirror is how I say it. But but still, kudos to you for getting all that training and leveraging it in such a um, a really significant way. I wonder if you might say a little bit more about your time at Goldman in particular, but on Wall Street as a, as a Latino and out executive, how was that pioneering experience for you at a big storied bank like Goldman? I, I didn't really experience it that way, Toby. I, I I would say if there was anything I was good at, it was just being being me and not some other version of me. And so I wasn't so much a pioneer the way I thought of it is when I got this letter from the headhunter, you know, I, I actually treated it as a joke. I thought I was scamming the bank for a free trip to New York. 
and and a weekend on fire island right and and then i got an offer and i took the offer and the 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 gentleman who became my boss armin avanesians who was really the founder of this concept of quants or or or, or computer scientists in a trading business not it support for the trading business but professionals on the trading desk he really created that that concept and uh, when he put the offer in front of me, he was sure I was going to say yes. He knew it was multiples of what of, of any number I'd ever seen before. But instead, I was just silent, and it was awkward. And there was a very long pause. And I finally said, "I think I should tell you that I'm gay." And this was 1993, uh-huh. right? This had never happened to him, and probably I don't know supposedly hadn't happened to anybody right no nobody really came out in a job interview but the way I looked at it is I had a career in Silicon Valley I was going to figure something out I didn't really need this job and I wasn't taking it that seriously so I wasn't going to become a closet case all over again just for some job in New York so it's not so much being a pioneer as just being unapologetic for being me now Armin who's hiring me good at thinking on his feet when i said i think i should tell you that i'm gay he said do you have a boyfriend which is a a lovely response but not something that you're allowed to ask in 2023 right but i i said yes and he said what does he do i said he's a lawyer his security's a lawyer and armin said well he can come out to new york and we'll get him a job at a law firm that works with us and i thought Okay, this this is gay friendly, I suppose. Actually, that was the wrong conclusion, Toby. It was it was not that it was gay friendly. It was that it was gay indifferent, right? They had something that needed doing. I had the requisite skills, and homophobia was not going to get in the way of of that match, right? And that was always my that was always my experience. I people would always ask me. I remember a, a common question. So don't you know any other Hispanic computer scientists that we could hire? And I I said, uh, my brother, Tom, he's a Hispanic computer scientist, and he's actually the only one I know. So I think there was this theory that I ought to know all the Hispanic computer scientists, but, but somehow I never did. So there again, it was just, I wasn't going to apologize uh, for being myself. Sure. And I remember when one day I, I was asked to be head of the firm white Hispanic and Latin network. And I remember, this is so sad. My first thought was, why are they asking me? Right? Like, I'm very Hispanic, but I don't like wander around thinking that. And then I thought, oh, yeah, I'm Hispanic. Sure, I'll do that. Sure. Right? So, so I guess I don't think of these identities, you know, they're, they're interesting identities, but they're really not the thing that is top of mind for me about myself. Well, I think that's because you're an evolved leader, but also, you know, great that you could lead by example at a minimum, but ladies and gentlemen, today I should remind us, we have our Martin Chavez or Marty Chavez with us. He's the partner and vice chairman of Sixth Street, the $50 billion global investment firm. Um, Marty, you also at Sixth Street, you're, you're leading DEI efforts, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, not everyone is as um, a natural, so to speak, for just being who they are. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about DEI more broadly 
and how do you help instill it or inculcate it in your brand or what have you observed of other brands doing it? Sometimes it just falls flat, I think, but clearly yeah. if you can see what success looks like, it's easier to mimic it. So, so Toby, I think a lot of this is born of pragmatism. So, mm -hmm. so here's something that, that happens. It's a gay pride, it's pride month or it's Hispanic heritage month. And in the months leading up to it, I'll get 50 invitations to be a speaker, mm -hmm. right? And so if, if you're looking for LGBT, senior LGBT leaders in, in private capital, private equity, private credit, you end up going to one of those people. And then when you're thinking about Hispanics in private capital, there's, um, there's Orlando Bravo and there's me and you know, I'm sure there's got to be some others, but but this is what happens, right? I'll get 50 invitations to be the uh, Hispanic Heritage Month speaker. It's not scalable. I actually have a job, and and this is going to be a lot of speaking engagements. And so we started thinking, what? Why is it that there are only a couple of senior Hispanics in this industry, and what what are we going to do about it, if anything? And one of the quirks of my upbringing that I realized was just a quirk is my mother grew up in the barrio of Albuquerque, New Mexico, but somehow she got this idea that her kids would go to Harvard. And they all and, did. <laughs> and all five of us did, right? And so, so I just always grew up with this idea that um, if you really are tenacious, then you can make stuff happen, right? And so I never thought, oh, Wall Street is for uh, the Anglo-Saxon majority and not for me. I, I always thought, well, maybe I could do Wall Street or maybe I could do something else. But I had become aware that for whatever reason, for large numbers of Hispanic kids, they just don't really think about Wall Street at all. Correct. So the, the, the really talented STEM kids all seem to have gotten what I got from my mom, which was you could be a doctor, but but they never got you could also do these other things. It just didn't really exist for them. And so one of the things that we're working on is is just making it well known and understood to Hispanic kids wherever they are that Wall Street's an option for them, that private capital is an option for them and it's worth their consideration, and they'd be welcome. And there are some things that you have to know to succeed. Like even just the mechanics of how you interview and what, what works well in an interview and what doesn't, it, necess it isn't necessarily obvious, right? I had, I had a bunch of serendipity going on for me, and I went to Harvard, and I knew... I knew how to interview on Wall Street, even though I'd never interviewed on Wall Street. I had roommates who did. It was it was in the in the ambiance around me. And so one of the things that we're working on doing is just increasing that awareness and doing it in a way that's scalable. So rather than me talking at 50 different company events, is there a way that I can reach a large number of people? And so this is something I'm super excited about doing. We're looking systematically at colleges and universities that have large Hispanic student po uh, populations 
one of them is the Cal State system. And so I've been working with the former chancellor of the Cal State system. He just came over to lunch at my house last week and we're we're gonna we're going at it. Like there's 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 tens of thousands of kids in that system and he's already sending me resumes and I can't be the mentor for a significant number of those kids, but are there events in person or virtual where mm -hmm. I can answer questions? And hey, I'm really reminded, Toby, of something my mom always told me. She said, yeah, you, you, you need to represent, absolutely. But the best way for you to represent is really just to be very successful and visible. And then- Hispanic or LGBT kids will see you. And that's really all that you need to do for them is be visible. And it sounded to me like that was maybe the easy way out, but more and more, I think she's right. Very large, large numbers of kids write me on LinkedIn and say, you don't know me, but I read this article about you, or I heard you talk at this event. And I thought, Hey, I could do that. And then I went and did it. And so I'm beginning to think that, uh, as usual, my mom was right about that. <laughs> Moms are always right. Well, yeah. I'm happy to help you there if I can. I, I've become fairly friendly recently with the president of SUNY New Pulse. The SUNY system is great here in New York, as you know. What about those kids? What what pearls of wisdom do you give them when you're talking to them? Or if those kids are listening now, like any sort of, you know, like check out this site or, you know, uh, use eye contact when you're interviewing. <laughs> There's so many words of, or pearls of wisdom, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, Toby, I'll give you my top pearl of wisdom. <laughs> Again, it's, it's very, very pragmatic, right? Which is when you go into an interview, don't ask your interviewer what the interviewer's company can do for you. Um, That's just, just don't do that. Instead, go. go into the interview with the mindset that you are going to make your interviewer very successful in his or her career, you are going to help your interviewer get paid and promoted by hiring you. There you go. And, and if you do that, it, it's just like sales 101, right? That's very inspiring to your interviewer. But if you go in and you want to know, oh, you know, how many days off am I going to get? And when am I going to get promoted? And yes. you know, that just all that stuff falls flat and you're smiling and it seems obvious to old timers like us, but it isn't necessarily yeah. obvious to a kid out there for the first interview. And yeah. I find that that approach to the interview makes a world of difference. Yep. And always send a thank you note. <laughs> for always everything. that too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we know now how people should find you if they want, which is on LinkedIn. Um, Marty, I, I had shared with you in advance, I had just finished reading this great book by Catherine Rundle on uh, John Donne, uh, yes. called Super Infinite. And he, in his writings and in this book, we discover how he really seemed to understand awe, the concept of awe, being able to write about it, capture it, explain it. And as I think back of you and your career, the years I've known you, you just, I think you've experienced it, you've theorized, you've built, you've survived, you have knowledge of Awe, both at the personal level, but I also think at that macro level in the world of finance and technology, AI. So my question is, what do you make of awe? Has it shaped your life? Is it something that does have some kind of practical application in the brands that you've worked with? 
or is that yes. just corn paw? No, it's 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 actually it's actually a huge thing, and awe awe has many variations. For instance, there's an old concept of the the fear of God, for example, right? Fear, inspiration, <laughs> fear, like in a like in a horror movie, or is it a different kind of fear? Probably more like awe, right? Yeah. Which can be scary and exciting. And it's usually a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And for me, the the big career inflection moments have been scary and exciting. So for instance, the financial crisis, I've never been the same. I, I, I was right there in the middle of it, not super senior, a recent partner of Goldman, so some some level of accountability, and and I got thrown right in the middle of it. I remember my boss calling me into his office and saying, there's a business that is having a lot of trouble, and we're having liquidity drains in that business every day. Uh, go fix it. And I said, well, I don't really know the first thing about that business. And he said, well, you've got all weekend to, to, to learn about it. Right. And that I remember being completely terrified. And of, of course, course me, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm watching the financial system come apart. Unbelievable. Like, like literally, I, I remember calling my brothers and sisters and saying, the banks might not open on Monday, right? And they said, what, what do you mean? I'm like, just like I said it, right? The, the ATMs might not work and, and, and you might go to the bank and, and nothing will happen, right? It was, we were that close. So that was a kind of awe. And I remember thinking, is my boss setting me up for failure by telling me to go run this business I know nothing about? Because that's how it felt. But then I there was another corner of my brain saying, this is a huge opportunity, right? If I can actually yeah. learn and be part of the solution. Yeah. And, and indeed, that the, the financial crisis really was the turning point yeah. in, in my career. So now, different kind of awe. In 2023, uh, I made a, a prediction for Liz Hoffman and her new publication, Semaphore. So I've known Liz for years. And for years, Liz asked me my prediction about financial markets. And for years, my answer has been, Liz, 50% chance it goes up and 50% chance it goes down. And then she'd say, oh, come on, you could do better than that. And I'd say, okay, here's my other prediction. There will be more software in the future than there was in the past. And then she'd say, okay, all right, you really don't want to make predictions. Well, finally, this January, last month, I gave her a prediction for her to write down. And it's amazing to me that I actually... She extracted a prediction from me, but it shows you how excited I am that I would actually go out on a limb. And here was my prediction. I said, exponential advances in artificial intelligence will prove so deflationary in 2023 that they materially help the Fed fight inflation and trigger the next technology boom. 
2023. Now, even a month ago when I said it, a lot of my associates said, I'm sure you're right, but not in 2023. You know, this is a Marty prediction. Uh, I'm infamous for having incredible visions of the future with the most terrible timing. Like I could be off by by decades, right? And so my, my it's like uh, Cassandra. My my uh, was it Cassandra? Yeah, my predictions are not that oh, yes. useful or or actionable. But this one, I actually feel confident about. The yeah. computers are starting to do the most insane things. Yes, here's here, another bit of all mention you you mentioned that i'm chairman of the board of recursion pharmaceuticals i was just there in salt lake city a couple weeks ago and actually saw saw what is going on there i know what's going on but i really experienced it up close and so they have all these machines and they're all connected by robot arms and there's these little trays and each tray has 1,500 little wells in it, little plastic trays, and each well has a different experiment happening in it on a cluster of four to 500 human neurons, not, not clones, but they are iPSC stem cells that have been coaxed into becoming neurons. So they're human neurons, and in each cell, there's a different experiment where you're knocking out using CRISPR one gene, and now they're knocking out all 17,000 genes one at a time, throwing a small molecule at it as you knock out that gene, and then imaging the cells to see what happens and applying AI to the images. Amazing. They're doing two and a half million of these experiments per week, generating exabytes of data yeah, and great. systematically mapping biology if that's not awe-inspiring i mean it brings it brings tears to my eyes you yeah know, and the rate at which it will just continue to amplify is just we're just getting we're just getting started i'm i think your prediction will be right i mean just we before you came on we were just talking about just the chat gpt i mean that has come out of nowhere in my world in the past week <laughs> <laughs> everywhere all the time i've downloaded it i'm seeing it i mean it's it's like whoa welcome to the future now toby what if i told you that chat gpt is a toy i'm sure to what you're going to see later this later this year i believe it I completely believe it because I have now, as I believe we all need to take an informed view, try and understand it or tinker with it yourself before you start to judge it, politicize it or what have you. But wow, just seeing what chat GPT is available and all the knockoffs coming from it. I'm just, I, I can only imagine that's the awe we're talking about. <laughs> you, you have that vision. And chat GPT has ignited uh, the competitive creative forces of capitalism in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah. I've, I've been a computer scientist since I was 10. 2023 is by far the most exciting year in the history of computer science. And what I think is going on, you know, that proverbial uh, story about someone invents the game of chess and, and the emperor rewards this person uh, and set, and 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 the person says, "I want a grain of rice on the first square, two grains of rice on the second square, right?" And and it doesn't seem like much for the first twenty squares, right? 
But then by the time you get to the 64th square, there's more grains of rice than atoms in the universe, right? And so this is the nature of doubling. This is the thing that's hard for us to wrap our brains around. Moore's law, right? The computer's getting roughly twice as fast, roughly every 18 months and the cost going down, right? If air travel were doing the same thing, we'd be zipping around at the speed of light by now, right? But air travel doesn't obey those dynamics, but software does. And the first many doublings don't look like a big deal. But then you get to the second half of the chessboard, squares 32, and it starts to get interesting. That is where we are right now. So we've been doubling, but it hasn't been exciting. But now, you know, you're going to see a doubling between now and the end of the year. I think you're going to see a doubling at the halfway point of the year in terms of the awe-inspiring capabilities and where it goes after that is who knows, right? Well, I am so grateful to have had you on the show, Marty, because I can come back to you when I need some guidance on all this. As you're talking, I'm remembering like just trying to teach a kid com- the beauty of compounded interest, right? Like, and trying to get them to save. So hopefully people are going to learn and be excited about this, not terrified and politicized. But uh, Marty Chavez, I want to just uh, let you have the last word and say thank you so much for coming on the Caring Economy. So over to you, any sort of final thoughts, words of wisdom or inspiration, although you've already shared a lot already and I'm grateful. Sure, well, I'm gonna put in a plug for my favorite book that I've read in the past several years Mm -hmm. uh, by Yuval Harari, which is Homo Deus, right? So he wrote a book, The History of Humanity called Sapiens, and then another book, The Future of Humanity called Homo Deus or, or Man, God, and it's terrifying and it's exciting. And he asked these hard questions about AI because it's coming. It's here. Are we going to be the friends of the AI, the pets, the slaves, the food, right? He goes through all these, all these scenarios and, and he comes out with some advice and The advice is there's going to be, he calls it the digital priesthood. These are the people who tell the computers what to do. Hmm. And his top advice for people raising kids right now is be sure that they understand the data-driven algorithmic approach to problem solving, because that's going to be the skill set that really, really, really matters. And so it's a little bit of a dark, dark scenario, but um, again, back to what we discussed earlier about awe. Mm-hmm. It is, it is awe-inspiring, and fundamentally, I'm a techno-optimist. Technology creates immense challenges, mm-hmm. and it's often the answer to those challenges at the same time as it's creating challenges. And and this is something that really only people can do. And I, I see only people doing for a long time is distinguishing between the dangers and the opportunities and, and making the right choices. So there you go for all of us to reflect on. Yeah. And with recommending that, I will pick up a copy of uh, Homo Days. It's also pragmatic, which is what you've been throughout your career. So thank you again. <laughs> you bet. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby 
via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.